0: Many of you will be familiar with the joke about the man who's drowning at sea and he's praying to God to rescue him. Do you know this joke? uh, He's he's, he's busy uh, floundering at sea. He's praying to God for rescue. Um, And after a little while, a lifeboat happens to pass him by and the lifeguard shouts to him that he'll throw him a ring. But the man says, no, 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 I'm praying to God. He's the one who's going to save me. You can carry on going. So he carries on swimming in the sea. And a little while later after that, another lifeboat comes along. And the lifeguard says, do you need help, sir? Let me throw you a ring to rescue you. And he says, no, it's okay. I don't need your help because God is going to save me. I'm praying to God. A little while later, a third lifeboat comes along. And the lifeguard says, do you need some help, sir? And he says, it's okay. God's got this one covered. You can carry on going, I'm going to be saved by God. Anyway, a particularly big wave comes along and crashes over him and sends him into the depths and he drowns. And he goes up to heaven and he meets God there and he says, Lord, I was praying to you. Why didn't you save me? And God says, are you kidding? I sent you three lifeboats and you ignored every single one of them. It's not a very funny joke. That was about the level of response that I was expecting from the whole thing. But it does illustrate an interesting point, which is when do you read something as a sign from God, and when shouldn't you? Well, we're back in 1 Samuel again uh, this morning. If you're new, we've been going through the book of uh, 1 Samuel during the last few weeks. And in our passage today... David is in a situation that is somewhat similar to the man drowning at sea. But if we were to tell this joke to him, he might tell us that the right thing is actually to pass, let the lifeboats pass by in very particular circumstances, even if everybody thinks it's obvious that God has sent them. Well, first, before we get to that, let me remind us of the story so far. You remember that Saul... The current king of Israel is on the way out. And David is on the way in. Saul has proved himself to be the wrong kind of king. Uh, God's told him that he's going to give his kingdom to another man. And David has been chosen by God for the task. But the handover from Saul to David is not exactly straightforward and an uncomplicated procedure. I don't know what the handover conversation between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak looked like recently. But I very much doubt that Rishi had to master all of his combat training skills to dodge spears being thrown by Liz. But that's sort of what the handover between Saul and David has looked like so far. Saul is not going out without a fight, and so David is on the run, having been, having thrown spears at him left, right, and center. And what we get in this second half of the book of 1 Samuel is about 15 chapters or so of David on the run from Saul. Now on one level, that's quite surprising. 15 chapters is a lot. The whole of Mark's gospel, for example, is only 16 chapters. Why devote so much time to this cat and mouse chase between David and Saul, before David is inevitably crowned as king, which we know is going to happen, and does happen in 2 Samuel. But as we saw last week, the reason for these chapters is that we're getting a window into the mindset of the right king and the wrong king. The lesson's been made very clear about what kind of king God's people need. If you cast your mind all the way back to chapter 2 and Hannah's prayer, we were told that God is committed to bringing down the proud and lofty rulers of this world and exalting the humble and lowly, the man who looks like he's not that great to the outward eye but is actually exactly the right kind of person for the task. And in chapter 13, we read, uh, we learned that the right kind of man is also one who has a heart after God's own heart. That's the key qualification. But what does it really look like to be a man after God's heart? What's What's a reasonable level? of obedience to God. That's what these chapters are exploring as we follow David. Now, as with last week, we don't have uh, enough time to cover everything in these chapters. I would encourage you to go away and have a read of chapters uh, 21 to 23, which we're going to skim over very briefly before we get to uh, chapter 24. But let me just summarize some of the key things that they show us. So last week, Saul was the one primarily in the spotlight. Most of the plot line in chapters 18 to 20 uh, was about what he was going to do as it became increasingly clear uh, that God was no longer supporting him and was supporting David instead. This week, the spotlight shifts much more squarely onto David. We know that he's on the run. We know that Saul's trying to have him killed. But what will David do in response to all of that? And the gist of what you see about David in these chapters is that he is consistently a man who is very concerned to do what God wants. Even when he's on the run for his life, he comes across as almost priest-like in these chapters. In chapter 21, for example, he takes a pit stop with some priests to get some provisions, and Abiathar, the high priest, is willing to give him the holy bread that normally only the priests are given. Why would he do such a thing? Well, it's because David is a man who keeps himself to the same sort of standards of godly living as they were supposed to. And that theme continues in the following chapters. David is constantly concerned to inquire of God like the priests were supposed to. If you want to have a little bit of homework to do, have a read of these chapters and look how how often the word ephod comes up uh, during it, and have a think about what the significance of that might be. Come and have a chat to me um, afterwards or at the end if you want to do a little bit of a deeper dive about that. But the situation is getting tighter and tighter, and it feels like Saul is closing in all the more and constantly discovering all of David's hiding places. Will David continue to be a priest when his life and the life of his men are really threatened? By chapter 23, Saul is closing in more and more, and David is only just managing to escape. Now, as we read through these chapters, we mustn't imagine that this is all a little bit like David and his chums out on a merry adventure, foiling the bumbling Saul yet again, who's shaking his fist a bit like a Scooby-Doo villain or anything like that. Saul is a man who is degrading more and more and becoming ever more paranoid and murderous. In chapter 22, he has all of the priests murdered that David visited in an act of genocide that reminds you of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. It's horrific. He will do whatever it takes to get David dead. These are harrowing times for David and his men as they live on the run, camped out in rat-infested caves, constantly on the alert at any sign of trouble, away from family, not knowing if their family are safe or not. Can you imagine having to live in such circumstances for months on end? Imagine, for example, that Putin wanted to get you specifically and was willing to muster all of the resources at his disposal in order to do that. That's probably what it felt a little bit like to be David on the run from Saul. And in fact, you can get an insight into what it felt like if you read through some of the Psalms. Which were specifically written about this. Psalm 57, for example. I am in the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. It doesn't sound very much like David on a merry adventure, does it? He's forced to suffer incredibly, which must have felt especially unjust, given that he was the one that, that God has appointed to become the replacement king. What is God doing putting him through all of this? And now at last we get to chapter 24 and the passage that we had read. Have a look back uh, down with me. That's back on uh, page 296 if you've closed your Bible. Let's have a read of verses 1 to 3 together. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of en So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel, men we note who he probably should have been assigning to go and fight against the Philistines rather than hunting David, and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. So once again, here comes Saul, with his army of crack troops, and David has had to hide from him. And he's come into an era where the spies tell him that David is here somewhere, but he doesn't know exactly where he is. So he thinks to himself, well, I'd better pop to the loo before any action starts. And uh, you know how it is when you're outside, you need someone with a little bit of privacy, a bush perhaps, or even it looks like there's a small cave just up the hillside. That would do perfectly. So... Uh, he, uh, he, he tells his bodyguard to hold his armor and his sword for a minute and he scuttles off into the cave. And um, he, t- he takes off his big royal robe and he drapes it over a rock because, you know, it wouldn't do for it to... Um well, anyway, he, he drapes it over the rock and, uh, um, and, and he turns to face the entrance of the cave because obviously you want to see where the danger might come from. And he squats down uh, to do what he needs to do. The Bible's not boring, is it? (laughs) But of course, his eyes haven't acclimatized to the light yet. And little does he realize that this small cave that he's gone into goes much further back than he realizes. Perhaps even there's a network of tunnels back there, the perfect kind of place for a whole small army of men to be hiding. And these men watch gleefully as the scene before them unfolds. At first, the atmosphere was tense as they could hear someone approaching. Are they about to be found out? But then they realized it was just a solitary figure, not a scouting party. And he didn't seem to be aware that they were there at all. In fact, hang on a second. Is that Saul himself? Surely not. Surely surely that can't be. No, it is him. Look, he's draped his robe over that rock over there. It must be him. And suddenly, the penny drops for all of them. This is the moment, isn't it? Here is Saul on his own, right before them. He has no idea what is going on. He's at his most vulnerable. Not only has he taken his armor off, but the royal bottom is exposed. It could almost be a comedy if it wasn't such horrific circumstances surrounding all of this. They've been praying for God to come and rescue them from the hand of Saul. They've had to place their trust in David. They've been trusting that God is with him. They've been praying every single day for rescue. And now here is the metaphorical lifeboat. Surely this is the day of salvation that the Lord has provided. It is what they call in the trade a no-brainer. And you can imagine the adrenaline starting to pulse through the veins of the men. They must have been thinking, relief is coming from this tyrant. And very quietly, David's lieutenant leans forward and he whispers in Saul's ear, verse 4, This is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands to deal with as you wish. It's so obvious, isn't it? The Lord has provided a lifeboat. I don't know when, if you can think of a time in your life when you've been praying for something and God seemed to provide a very clear answer. Well, this is about as clear as it gets, isn't it? And before we go any further, let's remind ourselves of all the reasons why David's lieutenant is surely right. For a start, Saul is now a murderous beast who must... Be stopped. Not only has he killed all of the priests without a trial, an act so horrendous that his own men refused to carry it out, but he's also now failing to protect everybody else from the Philistine raiding parties because he's so focused on catching David. Secondly, David himself has done nothing wrong. This is completely unjust, and Saul himself even acknowledged it back in chapter 19. And thirdly, David is the new Lord's anointed. He's got divine backing. God has selected him to become the replacement king. And so David sneaks forward into the shadows, dagger in hand. His men all with their hearts in their mouths, praying that he doesn't stumble on a rock or make a noise or anything. And they see him slide behind the rock where Saul has put his robe and delicately cut off a corner of the robe which is draped over the rock. That's slightly strange. You know, you can do whatever you like with the robe after he's been assassinated. Surely, you know, why are you wasting time? Get on with it, David. And then they see him tiptoe back towards all of them with the corner of the robe and nothing else. While Saul pulls up his trousers and whistles a tune and heads back outside. That's not a 100% delivery of what we were hoping for in this situation. There's, there's a key element here, David, that you might have missed. And you can imagine the men all gesturing wildly with David. What are you doing? He's going now. At which point David tells them to calm down and says, no, we're not going to do it this way. It may look like a no-brainer, but it's not. And he asked them to trust him one more time. Have a look down at verse 6. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Now, those of you with a good memory for detail may remember um, back to uh, the earlier sermons in this series and may remember that this is not the first time that a robe has been cut in 1 Samuel. Back in chapter 15 was the first time when Saul had just made his terrible mistake. He had not followed through on all the instructions he had been given by God uh, when he really should have done. And the prophet Samuel rebuked Saul for what he had done. And as Samuel turned to leave, Saul grabbed hold of his robe And it tore at the bottom. And Samuel used this as a visual aid of what God was about to do to Saul. He was about to tear the kingdom from him and give it to another, just like this robe had been torn. And now as we stand with David in the the cave, and he's cut off the corner of Saul's robe, we're probably thinking, well, surely this is the moment when all that will be fulfilled. The symbolism is perfect, isn't it? But instead, David cuts off the corner of the robe as a visual aid of what he is not going to do. The kingdom will be taken away from Saul, but he is not going to be the one who will do it. And he stands at the entrance of the cave and he calls down to Saul, having persuaded his men not to go down and take Saul's life, and says this in verse 8. Then David went out of the cave and he called out to Saul, My lord, the king, When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father... Look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut it off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting down me down to take my life. It's extraordinary, isn't it? How one scrap of clothing could signify so much. And even Saul is brought to his knees by what David has done. Or rather, hasn't done. Even he can see that this is exactly why David is the right man for the job, and he isn't. Verse 16 When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? Up until this point in the narrative, he simply called him the son of Jesse. And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord gave me into into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you have treated me today. I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Well, that's the summary of the narrative. But now let's try and draw things together by thinking again about that question that we started with. What, what does it really look like to be a man after God's own heart? What does it really look like to be a man after God's heart? We know that David is the right man for the job. He demonstrated that by his trust in God as he fought against Goliath the giant. But so far in the story, his inner resolve to put God first hasn't really been stress-tested over a period of time. You know how it is when you're doing some DIY, you're putting up some shelves or something like that. They all look good on the wall, um, but you need to put some pressure on them to stress-test them, to see if they'll be able to take the weight um, of your extensive collection of component-heavy strategy board games that you want to put on there, which I know is a domestic situation that faces us all routinely. And this is the stress test that David is having to go under. This is where we really see what it looks like to have God's priorities as your number one priorities as he is tested within an inch of his life. And what David shows is that even if you're drowning and all your men are drowning, metaphorically speaking, and when it looks like God has sent a lifeboat, he's delivered the very man into your hands who's causing all of this trouble... The right answer is still to wait for God to provide the rescue if that man is the Lord's anointed. Now, this isn't because David thinks that Saul is innocent or that he shouldn't be brought to justice. He does think that. And it isn't because he thinks that he, David, shouldn't be king. He does think that he, David, should replace him as king. But the point is that he will wait for God to do it in his own timing. Verse 15, he says, May the Lord be our judge and decide between us, but he won't take matters into his own hands. Because, you see, David has such a high regard for God's word, God's decisions and his appointments, that he won't raise his hand against the Lord's anointed, even if Saul is the Lord's anointed on the way out, and even if he, David, seems to have every justifiable reason to do so. Purely because this is still the man that God appointed to be king of his people. And therefore, to raise his hand against him is at some level to raise his hand against God's decision. It's fascinating. David believes this so deeply that when Saul is finally killed in a battle at the end of the book, he doesn't have a great party to celebrate. He weeps for the death of Saul. I wonder, have you thought about Saul the same way as David does As we've gone through these chapters, would your instinct have been to treat him the same way, purely because he is the Lord's anointed? Or would we have taken the option that was easier for us? One of the exercises that we should always make sure we do when reading any part of Scripture is to think about who it was originally written for and why. We have to bear in mind that this wasn't written in the first instance to us in the 21st century. It was written for the people of Israel further down the line, several generations after David. In fact, it was probably written at a point when everything seemed to have gone in the wrong direction. It all seemed to have gone wrong. You can tell that as you read on through the Old Testament. And therefore, probably one of the main reasons why these history books were written wasn't just to remember the good old days. It was to help them to look forward to the future as well. Today is Remembrance Sunday. We remember events of the past today. But part of the reason that we do that isn't just to remember them, but to look to the future as well, to make sure that mistakes of the past aren't repeated, for example. And the same is true in the Bible as well. The history books are there to remember the past, but they're also there to look forward. Because, of course, one of the key promises that every Old Testament Jew reading this would have known further down the line was that one day God would give them another king in David's line. And he would come along and sort out all of the mess that they eventually got themselves into. And so you can imagine later generations reading through 1 Samuel as they wondered what the son of David, the king to come, might look like. And as they read this, they're supposed to think, these are the kinds of qualities that that king needs to have. To be strong, yes, to triumph over all of God's enemies. All the rulers of the world who are doing their own thing. Hannah's prayer at the start of 1 Samuel said that. And the Psalms and the prophets are full of it. They insist over and over again that this king that God will send will triumph over every other power in the world. He will be a strong man. But, the readers of 1 Samuel think, as they read this, we're also learning that the king also needs to be the sort of man who has a very, very high regard for what God thinks is right. Not like Saul, who only looked good on the outside, but like David, whose constant concern was for God's decisions and God's word. In fact, he'll put God's decisions first, even if he has to suffer through intense and unfair persecution along the way, even when his own life is in peril. That's what the son of David will surely look like. Remind you of anybody? Why don't we pray to finish? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these chapters in 1 Samuel and the way that they give us a window into what it really looks like to have a king after your heart. We're humbled that we probably wouldn't have acted like David if we were in his situation. Most of us uh, probably don't have as high a regard for your decisions and your word As David, we probably would have taken the option that made our lives easier. But we thank you for how clearly we can see how these chapters paved the way for the Lord Jesus. And we pray that as we look at this book, it would really help us to understand more clearly why he is the right king and the one that you have appointed to be Lord over all. And in his name we pray. Amen.